And welcome back to Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Today we are talking about the MonsterVerse movies leading up to Godzilla vs. Kong. We've got a monster-sized episode today. Three movies, Godzilla 2014, Kong Skull Island, and Godzilla King of the Monsters. I'm Sam Wilson. I'm Zach Schneider. And I am Troy Inslee. Okay, so let's go ahead and get this party started. We're starting with Godzilla 2014. It is necessary to say the year because there are a lot of movies that are just called Godzilla that have been made over the years, both Japanese and American. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are so many. This one was directed by Gareth Edwards. This is going to be a full spoiler review for all three movies, so if you've not seen these movies, Go watch them. Most of them are on HBO Max. I think Kong and Godzilla King of the Monsters are on HBO Max. And you can rent Godzilla 2014 easily enough. Go rent those and then come back and listen to this. Unless you just don't give a shit about spoilers. In which case, cool. Our first topic is kind of the main... The Brody family, which is kind of the main uh, uh, family at the heart of this movie. And I'll admit, you know, I had to kind of look up the names of these characters because... I don't remember the names of these characters, but you have Ford, played by Aaron Taylor Johnson. You have his wife, Elle, played by Elizabeth Olsen. And then his dad, Joe, played by Brian Cranston. The movie is weird because it kind of starts off, and like, definitely the promotional material made you think that Brian Cranston was going to be the main guy in this movie. And even like the beginning of the movie kind of leads you into that direction. Although they do show the young son of, you know, the, the the one who will eventually become Aaron Taylor Johnson after the time jump. And it's like, okay, maybe this is going to be a father-son tale of them going through this adventure together. And it makes you think it's going to be that too. And then Brian Cranston just kind of fucking dies. And it seems like he was going to, it seemed like he was going to be okay. And then he just... Just as he was on the verge of recovering, he suddenly died. No, it is one of those things, like, it was kind of the, the Monty Python thing, it's like, ah, oh, I th- think I'm actually feeling quite well, sir, I think I might pull through, oh, sir, God. and then they, like, zip up the, the body bag, it's like, no, no, I'm not dead, no! <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I think I would have vastly preferred if the movie did have Brian Cranston the whole time, um, I liked his dynamic with Ford, in general, I just liked his dynamic, his obsession, and... Brian Cranston is always a joy to watch. Ford, uh, Aaron Tain Johnson's Aaron, Ta- Aaron Taylor Johnson, AJ's character. You did not see that coming? <laughs> AJ's character is fine. That is both the nicest thing and the biggest problem I have with him is that he is okay. I, I do not hate him, but I, d- I don't love this guy either. He's generic protagonist. Yeah. To be honest, I don't care about the humans. Fuck them. in this movie i really don't dr kurosawa is probably the best character out of the first movie they hired brian cranston so he can do his little cry on screen and try to get everybody to move because he loses his wife elizabeth olsen does a fantastic job as she always does she's phenomenal atj (laughs) (laughs) he's all right but to be honest who gives a fuck about the brody family (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i hate to be that way but i'm in it to see godzilla i think troy where you and i kind of differ on these movies yes i love the monsters and i like godzilla and everything but like 
I always feel like I need a human character or human characters to follow to for me to create an emotional connection to the movie for me mm-hmm. personally. And I feel that this family of characters could have been that. But the biggest problem with it really was killing off Brian Cranston when they did. What this movie should have been was this entire movie should have been the father-son journey. Because I think that the two characters make each other more interesting. And I think when you Mm -hmm. remove the dad from the equation, then the son is just like... He doesn't really have an emotional connection. Like, he, he has his wife and his kid that he's trying to get back to. But he only shares scenes with them at the very beginning and the very end of the movie. He needed somebody to emotionally connect with. They kind of tried to do something where he, like, for, you know, ten minutes of the movie, has a random kid with him who's trying to, like, get back to his family. (laughs) We wouldn't need to, like, come up with these contrivances if you just left Cranston in the movie. This entire thing should have been the two of them going through this together. And then, if you wanted to have a tearjerker moment, if you wanted to kill off Brian Cranston at the very end of the movie. It should not have been at the beginning, though. And I don't even think you need to kill him at all. I'm just saying, if you did, kill him at the end of the movie to create a tearjerker moment. But it should have been, the entire movie should have been the father and son trying to repair their relationship while also dealing with kaiju. You know, it's like, there's also giant monsters we're trying to deal with. I don't know, I, I just think that that whole thing was a missed opportunity. The beginning of the movie made me cry. It mm-hmm. does every time when mm-hmm. she tells him to close the door. Mm-hmm. When when Brian Cranston's wife is, is like, we're not going to make it, just do it. And then you hear that thump and he opens it up and he has to watch his wife die. That catches me every time. I watched it two days ago just to catch up for this. And I was like, oh my God, those sons of bitches. <laughs> and then about halfway through it, Brian Cranston was still screaming and crying like that crazy man in the desert and i was just like that's all he does he's here because breaking bad was a hit and brian cranston cries and screams and does a little dance in his little tidy whities very well (laughs) (laughs) but that's brian cranston now now granted he is a phenomenal comedian and i wish that they had have had those rhythms in this movie the human part of this movie was too much drama. It's like, come on. There's got to be something. You got to give me some kind of rhythm where it just stays down here and just when you think you can't cry anymore, oh, we're going to drop it a little more. And it's like, what the fuck? Come on. <laughs> you smash me a building, Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> So, as far as the wife goes, the Elizabeth Olsen character, I think that she was fine. I, obviously, Elizabeth Olsen does a f- phenomenal job, like you said, Troy, as she always does. She, she's, she's always f- yeah. phenomenal. She was meant to be the representative of the average person dealing with this. That yeah. was that was kind of that was kind of the role that she played, and she played that role very well. There just wasn't a lot for her to really do in this movie. Other than just kind of be the eyes of the audience of like, this is how the average person is perceiving what's going on. As in, they don't know what the fuck's going on. There's really scary shit happening. 
One thing I really like about this movie is the way that it almost portrays the idea of kaiju battles. It feels like a natural disaster movie. You know, like this, it, it, they approached it in a similar way that they would approach like a, a tsunami movie or a tornado movie or something like that. Really focusing on the, the people on the ground and just the destruction and the, the, the horrifying parts of it. Seeing, you know, refugees and people separate from family members. It really feels like a natural disaster. And that was something that I actually did enjoy about this movie in general. I just think that there were a lot of missed opportunities with the main family. But the other main human characters in this movie are the scientists and military. I definitely agree with you, Troy, that, that Ken Watanabe character was probably, honestly, especially with the, the early departure of Bryan Cranston, probably the best human character in the entire movie was Ken Watanabe. I, I really liked him a lot in this movie. He did bring a lot of drama. Like, I love the stopped watch that he has of his father, who, either Nagasaki or Hiroshima, I don't remember which one. The fact that this is a guy who's already been through a lot, but he really, like, he wants to save people, but he also cares about Godzilla and has is, is put so much of his life into this. I love seeing the military might fighting with the scientists. I'm always drawn in on that because we see two parts of humanity. Some of us are curious. Some of us want to know. I want to see what the creatures are going to do. I'm like Kurosawa. Let them fight. Let nature take its course. <laughs> I want to see the humans go to more of a curiosity phase. But then you always have these, drop a nuke. Let's drop a nuke on them. Let's end it. Yeah. Let, we can take them. We can take them out. The military type have always really pissed me off. It's because we have this ability in us where we just want what we want and we don't care the price that the Earth or other people have to take for it. Mm -hmm. That's what this franchise is about. It's about the human beings mm -hmm. being out of control, wanting to continue to destroy the world, and now these titans are waking back up and it's time for us to pay the piper. It's time for us to go into this more natural order. And the scientists see that. They understand that we are killing this planet. It's like a humongous organism, and we have to stop living the way that we're living. And these titans are back to put it in order. And the military are like, no, we're going to have our way. We're going to force this down these creatures' throats. We are the top of the food chain, and they're served a piece of humble pie. Jack Hanna, one of my favorite conservationists, uh, he's from Tennessee, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of him. Uh, he was big in the 90s. One of his last public interviews, no one has had him on since then, because he was asked, with all this news about climate change and humans causing it, what do you think? And he said that he hopes that we kill ourselves fast enough to where the rest of the world doesn't suffer. And that is the thought of the scientific community. We're looking at a hostage situation where people have taken the world hostage and they want to kill everything before they go. And the military is that hostile personality of each of us. We want our things. We want to be materialistic. And I'm preaching, and that's why people don't like these movies, is because it's saying Godzilla is nature. It's saying that nature is going to come back and bite us in the bud. And I love that the scientists are embracing that. We have to fall in order. I love that the military is standing up and showing that other side of human nature. 
that's what pulled me into this movie, and that's where I fell in love with the franchise. Before then, I did not like the Brian Cranston stuff because it's reality TV shows. That's what it felt like to me. The Brian Cranston, the Brody family, that's reality TV. I've seen Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, I'm done with reality TV. But the scientists and the military, that's the real fight in this whole paradigm, in this whole new MonsterVerse franchise. That's where we get all of our meat and potatoes from. I like the fact that these kaiju are looked at as being forces of nature and that they're beyond our control. And I think that that's why, to me, ultimately, this movie I thought was stronger than the second movie, which we're going to get to, because I feel that in the second movie, <laughs> there was almost too much of the human characters controlling the outcome. I kind of liked the fact that, I mean, honestly, it's such a trailer line, but, like, the best line in the movie it really is the one that you already alluded to, of just the slow push in on Ken Watanabe. The arrogance of man is thinking that we're in control of nature and not the other way around. Let them fight. You know? <laughs> Such a good line. Such a good line. Yes. So so masterfully <laughs> delivered. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, and, and this, this is kind of coming up, as far as, like, whether or not this movie is a little bit too much teasing Godzilla and not enough actual Godzilla, but when Godzilla <laughs> shows up in this movie, he shows up. The thing about Godzilla that I love in this movie, that I actually love more than any other movie in this universe so far, is how weighty the scale of Godzilla is. Like, in other movies, sure, they're big monsters and you can see that from a distance. Like, other movies, they have them as big. This movie, this is a mountain that moves. This is a mountain of scale, of flesh, of animal being. And this movie, I think, sells that more than anything else. When Godzilla arrives, he is impossible to look away from. He is a landscape moving towards you. And I just absolutely love that aspect of his appearance. Design-wise, he is a chunky boy, and I love that. It's but... very faithful <laughs> to the original Toho design. They, they yes. definitely were in this one. Oh, yeah. This movie really sells, for me, the sheer scale of Godzilla and these Mutos, especially Godzilla. I absolutely love his design, and one thing I love about it is that Godzilla is kind of the hero of this movie, but one thing I love that really I think this movie does better than the others even is that these are animals. They are not humans. They do not think or react or move the way a human would. You might be tempted to anthropomorphize Godzilla, and I'm not saying that they're stupid animals. I'm not saying, oh, these are big, dumb creatures. I'm saying that these are natural beings. You know, they're not really anthropomorphized in the sense of, oh, he's a hero, he looks out for humanity. Kind of, but that's not the entire reason Godzilla is there. Um, the Mudos especially. One thing I love about them that is took me like a second to realize is they're not evil. They're not particularly malicious. As a matter of fact, for the most part, they don't notice humanity. They don't notice the buildings they're wandering through. They don't notice the people they're killing. They're not even like trying to eat people or anything. They're trying to eat nuclear waste, which already existed in their world. There are natural hotspots of radiation. And now, thanks to humanity, there's unnatural hotspots of radiation they're attracted to. You know, when they're coming towards each other, the reason they go to San Francisco is that's a convenient halfway point. They're there to mate. They're there to just do what species do. They're not particularly malicious beings. They're just existing. 
and Godzilla is there. The main difference is that Godzilla, I think, is a more intelligent being. There is a definite intelligence to him. To a sense, he does actually care. Like, once he's done fighting the Mudos, he's off. He leaves. And I think it's it goes back to what you said about what humanity is like, about what the military is like, where humanity will do whatever they want, damn the consequences, damn what happens. And that's the Mudos on a much more animal level. I guess I'm, you know, contradicting something I said. They are evil in the sense that they don't care about humanity. They're not actively malicious. They're not trying to hurt humanity, but they also don't care what happens to any other species in their way. Godzilla is there because he does care. You know, it's kind of implied that there were possibly other members of Godzilla's species that some of the Mutos had previously killed. And, you know, leaving Godzilla is pretty much the only one left. So he knows what happens when these types of beings run unchecked. Again, not because they're actively trying to destroy the world, but just because they are trying to do what they want to do, damn the consequences. And Godzilla is there to say, I am the consequences, Godzilla. <laughs> I am the... <laughs> But no, I, I do love that. That, you know, he doesn't, you know, despite Godzilla, you know, having the re reputation of destroying buildings. Yeah, he does, but he does not try and destroy humanity. Whenever there is a fight, he actually, for the most part, just keeps to the areas that are already wrecked. And when he leaves, he, you know, he leaves slowly. He just goes straight for the harbor, doesn't try and knock out or kill anyone. But on the other hand, he's also definitely not on humanity's side either. It's like, I am here... Because these things are going to cause massive damage to the world, but I'm not here because I care about your cities or your infrastructure or what you've built. That is definitely not what I'm here yeah, for. Yeah, he proved that by stepping on everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I absolutely love... Seeing both Godzilla and the Mutos is amazing. I, I absolutely love the sheer scale. Yeah, there was something that Gareth Edwards, the director of this movie, did, which I picked up on on the most recent rewatch where most of the mm. shots where one of the creatures is on camera, there is usually something in the foreground in front of them. And often mm. the thing that's in the foreground is in sharper focus than the actual creature. What that accomplishes is it gives you mm. a sense. It not only gives you a true sense of the scale, but it makes the creatures themselves a background which makes them feel even mm -hmm. more massive. So I, I pretty much echo everything you said, Zach. Like, it, it was really smartly directed, smartly shot, great CG, like, great visual effects, mm -hmm. um, really cool design for all, for all three of the main creatures in this. So, yeah, I, I pretty much am, am going to echo what you said there. So I looked it up. My biggest complaint about this movie was not enough Godzilla, and I said that when it first came out, mm -hmm. you know. And I looked it up, and... Had Godzilla been rendered on one computer, it would have taken 450 years to render Godzilla. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, uh... we didn't get as much Godzilla because it was new technology at that time that they were using to render Godzilla. Mm -hmm. um, because it was a newer software and uh, special effects editing. It did its job, it did very well, but it took lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. of render farms to, to produce the little bit of Godzilla we did get. But they made sure, just like Sam said, when Godzilla was on screen, Godzilla was on screen. Mm -hmm. You know, he was fighting, mm -hmm. he was doing his thing. 
And they did a lot of crowd-pleasing moves with Godzilla. With the Mutos, I, I have to say, if you're going to bring Godzilla back from the dead, and I know they have all these Shin Godzilla and all of that bullshit, but whatever you... We're going to get hit for that one. But whenever it comes to <laughs> Godzilla, this really takes the old monarch storyline, the old comic books, and it really resurrects it. And this was a resurrection for all of the monster fans. They did a lot of things for the fans in this movie when Godzilla was on screen. And it's always been, if you go back and watch the old Godzilla movies, it's always been mostly the people in the front, and it's always been mostly the people acting it out and more about the people. And Godzilla and the rest of the kaiju have been purposes. They've been metaphors for whatever. Mm -hmm. So Godzilla did its part in 2014. It resurrected this monster verse. It, it put it back on the map and everybody was happy to see Godzilla. Most of the complaint for this Godzilla movie was that he, there wasn't enough Godzilla. And that's what you want to hear for your first movie because they've meant for it to become more of a trilogy. I know Kong Skull Island is there so that they can do this Kong versus Godzilla movie. It's been on their minds from the very beginning. They knew they were going to have to do the Godzilla versus Kong. You can't do it without that big rivalry. I'm interested to see what they do. We know that Kong is going to be more anthropomorphic in this movie than he has ever been. That's a nod to the comic books. And they've shown these glimpses of Godzilla noticing the people and accepting that people were worshipping him and helping him and so on and so forth. There's these moments that you can see something going on in Godzilla's eyes. And I love that, how you can give this huge creature an inner monologue and its special effects. Mm -hmm. I love that they did that with Godzilla. Those little moments go a long way for me. I think resurrecting Godzilla was beautiful. I didn't like the Mutos. I thought they were designed well, but I thought they were way too generic to bring in for a for a Godzilla mm. movie. I mean, I understand that you couldn't have the big ones come in, but you could have had Quetzalcoatl, mm. or you could have had Behemoth, or something, uh, another titan. Gamera. To... Do you know yeah, Gamera? Yeah, Gamera. <laughs> Give me Gamera. That's awesome. I, I loved Gamera when I was a kid. Oh my God. Um, me and my brother, we played aliens and monsters and I would be Godzilla and he'd be Gamera and we'd fight it out in the yard when we were kids. So these monster movies are, they're everything for me. And even in my career, that's, I started creating monsters and horror movies and I mix my comedy in with those. So these monster movies, they really are everything to me. And I'm I'm easy to please because I'm just thankful to have another Godzilla movie. I am. I hope it goes on forever and I hope I get to work on one one day. I really do. And I'm thankful that they took this new technology and they resurrected and you can see Godzilla's skin it's not just some guy on a miniature set rolling around kicking over buildings. I'm not I'm not knocking mm -hmm. it, mind you, because that's what we had to do back in our day. And I would love to do a movie like mm -hmm. that as a parody. But to show where we have come with our technology to recreate these creatures and to give them texture, 
to give that skin texture and to make it move. It just, it gives me chill bumps right now talking about it. That's all I have to say. I, I don't even know if it makes sense. If I'm just drawling around, but Godzilla, uh, uh, no, uh, no, I totally, uh, uh. no, that totally makes sense. I totally see what you're saying. I mean, and as far as the, we were, we've already been kind of talking about the idea of anticipation versus payoff of like, is it too much buildup and not enough like actual fights? When I rewatched this the other night, it was the second time I had seen the movie. I'd only seen it once before. And the first time I watched the movie, I did feel that there was too much anticipation. The second time, I actually didn't feel that way. I actually no longer feel that way. And the reason I no longer feel that way is because I learned to watch the movie in a different way of this first one isn't really a monster fight movie. It's really what I kind of said before. It's a natural disaster movie. And when you watch it like that, it's a really good natural disaster movie. Like, it actually really is. Like, if you watch it th- through that lens, this is really just about this crazy thing happening, this this crazy natural thing happening that we have no control over. We can't fight it. We can't really affect the outcome of it. All we can do is get as far away from it as we can. That's Roll all we punches. can do, you know? And I, I, I kind of <laughs> enjoyed the movie on, on that level. I, mm-hmm. I still understand, you know, the people that complain. Like, they're... It felt like at the beginning of the movie, or like the first, you know, two-thirds of the movie, every time it seems like we're about to see a monster fight, the camera cuts away. Like, it happens two different different times in the movie. It literally. Like, (laughs) the first time we fully see Godzilla, it's like, oh, we're going to get a fight. Then we cut to a different scene. And then it's like, oh, they're going to fight again. We're like following Elizabeth Olsen. And then the door closes, and we don't see the fight. Like, it happens, like, twice in the movie. But then finally, at the end of the movie, we get the fight of Godzilla versus the Mudos. Zach, what did you think of the, the climactic fight when it actually happened? Oh, I loved it. I mentioned before that I love the scale. So I love that, appropriately, these are not... The Mudos are the closest to it, but these are not fast creatures, or rather they are fast, but considering the sheer amount of distance they're traveling just to scratch each other or bite (laughs) each other. It's weighty. Each blow is extremely weighty. I absolutely love how they move. One minor complaint I'll have about the Mudos is not even so much that they're generic. They're sleek. (laughs) They're they're a little too sleek for my liking. To be natural, yes. Yeah, they're, they're a little too sleek to be natural. Like, the female Mudo is a better in that regard. There is, you know, more to her that feels like, okay, this is a proper being. But the male especially, I'm like, this is this is too sleek a creature. But Godzilla himself, the way he moves, I love it during this fight scene. And there's a specific thing that I love about this series overall, but like especially in this movie. Because you don't see it coming. If you're a Godzilla fan, you know he's got his nuclear breath, like his fire breath. But in this movie, the very first moment you see it, And the thing I love about it is the very first moment you see it is actually the first moment you hear it. I love the slow, weighty build-up of him charging up his nuclear blast. I just love the sound of it. That boom, 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 boom. And then just everything stops. There's no sound for a second. And then... Everything in that direction is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) The nuclear breath is awesome. The nuclear breath, like when he uses it to like, he pours it into Mm -hmm. down the throat of the one Mudos. Yes! That's so cool. It's so cool. Classic Godzilla. Classic Godzilla. He holds open its mouth and just... (sighs) 
I just I love the weightiness of these fight scenes, especially especially of the nuclear breath. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I, I agree with you guys. It's a re- it's a really cool fight at the end there. Okay, let's go ahead since we got three movies to go through. Let's go ahead and do final thoughts and score this one. I'll go ahead and start. I think that this movie. I definitely liked it better the second time. I, I, I didn't really like it the first time I watched it, but I liked it a lot more the second time. I still maintain, and I know that, you know, Troy and a lot of other people don't really care about the human characters. I just wish, <laughs> I wish for myself that they had not killed off Brian Cranston early in the movie. I think that that was the biggest narrative mistake this movie made. They could have given Ford a really good kind of emotional arc with his dad the entire movie. There was a lack of something, like, emotionally to kind of latch onto for me. Definitely uh, Ken Watanabe is the best human character in the movie. The final fight at the end is is really well done, and it's a good natural disaster movie, so I'm going to overall... I'll give it a 6 out of 10 for myself. I love that they point out mortality. So I love that they kill off Brian Cranston... And they kill off all these other main characters throughout the whole franchise just because these beasts, these titans are going to outlive us. And it's just a metaphor to show how fragile mortals really are that it doesn't matter what we do and it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we're in the middle of. We're going to die. It could be something very stupid that kills us. (laughs) so it wins me over in that sense because human beings are fragile little monkeys it's what we are we think we're on top but our little concrete jungles will only last for so long whenever it comes to nature whenever it comes to earth itself we're just the blink of an eye so i love that they address that that mortality thing i can deal with less humans because i honestly think the human story in this one was not strong enough. I think that it was a throwaway piece. It's not important. It's not a storyline that's going to last to the next one. It's not a storyline that's going to last to the third one. They're just not important. So I think that it was a throwaway. I think that they needed some kind of human drama to mix into the movie. So that's where I give my hits for this movie. I'm also going to give it a 6 out of 10. Uh, I agree with you on that. But it's funny because we we give it the 6 out of 10 for the opposite reason. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. I'm going to pretty much take the uh, middle path there. Not because it's best to do so, but just because my opinion is generally mixed between that. This is a natural disaster movie. It is about something that cannot be controlled, cannot be contained. As far as this movie is concerned, it is a throwaway in that... The story of the humans in this movie, with the sole exception of Ken Watanabe's character, just because he is the monarch scientist who is going to be... We'll come back to that in a second, but at least for two movies, is going to be our through-line character for this franchise. So as far as all of their human drama being one and done, just wrap it up in this movie, that's fine and good. But it is a natural disaster movie. Your human drama, even if it only occurs for this movie, needs to be compelling because a natural disaster is something that you can't control. But that means that you have to care about people who can't affect the outcome, but you do want to care for them. You do want to see them survive. You do want them to get through this. At the end of the day, they're not really heroes in the sense that they are going to affect the world or they deserve massive praise for this. But you do want to see them come to a better place. You want to see them come to safety. 
Uh, you want to see them struggle, and you I do appreciate that you have that threat of mortality, the idea that, yes, even these heroes can die. Not heroes, but our protagonists can die here, that their survival is very much not assured. But that's one reason I do agree with Sam, that I would have preferred to see a little more Brian Cranston, just because I do want to see them make that journey together. That is what this story is. It is... A story of a small human journey as the world becomes used to a new type of natural disaster. As we are introduced to these characters and humanity as a whole has to learn, okay, so we're not on top of this as we thought we were. So I'm, I'm actually going to give this a 7 out of 10 because I think that for the most part it handles that well and... As far as showing us the monster fights, showing us Godzilla, they literally did as much as they could, as you pointed out. Uh, they sacrificed screen time for Godzilla to have his sheer weight and impact so that when he was on screen, he was there. And you're like, that's Godzilla, right? Good lord. And I appreciate that. I, I really enjoyed seeing not as much of him, but having the best version of Godzilla that you could have be there. I'm going to say this in my grandfather's voice. I didn't go to the theater to see people running around talking. I went to the theater to see Godzilla open a can of whoop ass. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the next movie in this universe, we're going to slide right into it. Kong Skull Island, which is kind of a prequel to all of this. It takes place in the 1970s, uh, pretty much right at the end of the Vietnam War, and I would argue this entire movie is pretty much a Vietnam allegory, but, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. I'd agree. Well, mm. we'll start with kind of the main... I, I wrote it down as the civilians, but, like, I, I'm more thinking about mainly the Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson characters, who are, are mm, kind of no, the main no, no, two no, heroes no. Who, we, who we sort of follow. Side note, so many MCU actors in this movie. Loki and Captain Marvel, kind of the two... Uh, I would argue the two main co-leads for, for most of this movie. I like them, and that is actually the best thing I can say about them. Kind of similar to the first Godzilla movie, and something that, for better or for worse, is going to be a theme through the MonsterVerse overall, is that these are the characters who wisely realize that they're not here to affect the outcome of what happens here mm -hmm. for the most part. They're there to observe, especially Brie Larson's character is there to observe, let people know what's going on, Tom Hiddleston's character is there to make sure everyone else lives long enough to do that. And that makes them the two smartest people in the movie because they're the ones who realize, yeah, we're not supposed to affect the outcome of this. And frankly, for the most part, we can't. Trying to do so is a bad idea, which we'll get to when we come to the military. Even if you think, or even if you could possibly have the ability to affect nature on a grand scale, it might not be a good idea to do that. And that is what they largely bring to this. So I like them very much. They have a lot of good chemistry. Something that I was missing from the first Godzilla movie is a little bit of humor that actually felt pretty natural. These are naturally funny characters. Even in the shits, even in the situation they're going through, the humor that they had actually felt pretty genuine. I agree. I love the civilians, and uh, all I have to say is, I'm dumb, 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 They are very pretty people. They are very pretty people. They're very pretty people. I actually really enjoy both Hiddleston and Brie Larson in this movie. I really like both of their characters. Weirdly, I feel like based on this movie, I feel like 
like you could cast the two of them as uh, Nathan Drake and Elena from from Uncharted, actually. But you know, that's that's, that's a whole other <laughs> <Yes>. thing. But... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, j- just get Tom Hiddleston to do his Chris Evans impression as Nathan Drake, but no. <laughs> he can totally do it. But anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really like their characters, and I, I think that they're, they're fun protagonists for us to kind of follow. I especially like Brie Larson. Actually, I, I like her even more than I like Hiddleston in a lot of ways. Like, I, I like how kind of compassionate she is and just seeing like you know the the fact that she's she's out of her depth but she's still just she's so fascinated by by this island and wanting to take as many photos as possible and just the fact that she's terrified but is also kind of loving this shit at the same time you know that this is this is what she lives for you know <laughs> so like i really enjoyed their characters and i enjoyed the kind of decision that they made at the end of uh, we have to save Kong, you know, it's, it's kind of the one thing that they do that they actually are able to sort of affect the outcome. And we'll get to Kong in a minute, but I think of the big creatures in this universe so far, Kong is definitely the one that's anthropomorphized the most, for sure. Not not even just because he's the one that looks like the most like a person, but I think even personality wise is treated the most like like an actual character and not like a force of nature. And also on the subject of the civilians, I had almost forgotten about these, but the monarch representatives, uh, the John Goodman and Corey Hawkins characters. John Goodman was kind of an interesting, like, you don't really know if you can trust this guy for most of the movie, you know, like, what what are his uh, motivations, mm-hmm. and you find out he's, like, kind of so obsessive on just finding proof of Kong that he's will- basically willing to sacrifice a bunch of soldiers' lives in order to do that when they easily could have just let this island be. Which is really the moral of the story is we really didn't need to go to this island. We could have just let it be and it would have been fine. I liked that they didn't know who they wanted to be. That's not a complaint. That's one thing I like about them is that Monarch, especially in the first Godzilla movie, is very much on the side of this is nature. We need to let it run its course. John Goodman is almost of the military mindset where he is angry. We'll get to the military in a second, but he wants the same thing that the military wants. He wants to just destroy all these monsters, and he is willing, as you mentioned, to risk anything and everything just to find proof so that he can bring down the heavy weight of humanity against them, not quite realizing whether or not that's a good idea or exactly how little the heavy weight of humanity really matters in the end. Yeah, so for the most part, I, I, did, I did like most of the, the civilian characters where kind of intuitively uh, Brie Larson and uh, Tom Hiddleston's characters understood what they should be doing here and Monarch was kind of stumbling and figuring it out, but... By the end of it, you know, the few remaining members of Monarch that lived kind of did figure out which side of that particular divide they I love the on. fact that Hiddleston and Larson's characters are immediately kind of drawn together, not in a romantic way, but the fact that they kind of understand that, all right, that's the person who's like on the same wavelength as me. And they, and they kind of, it's like kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. when you're put into a new group situation where you don't really know anyone, when you find that one person, it's like, that's the one I'm going to be friends with. That's what. That's the way I kind of felt with these two. Once again, they took the civilians and they took the military and they made it like the scientists in the military. Seriously, they set up that same archetype in this movie. And they had the same fight, just with King Kong. Except they had better creatures in this movie, uh, in my opinion. 
it was uh, Ray Harryhausen smorgasbord, except mm-hmm. for we were doing it with the new technology. So I absolutely uh, love mm-hmm. that. But I do love, I do think that they wrote up the civilians in a much better way in this movie than they did in the first, mm-hmm. in Godzilla 2014. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because the impact that the civilians created is something that picked up in Godzilla King of the Monsters. You know, it's something that pushed the story forward. It wasn't just writing some drama mm-hmm. to put on TV to feed people. So it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Everyone in this movie matters. There's no throwaway characters. And John right. C. Riley kicks ass, mm-hmm. as always. You know, he he's my favorite character from this movie. I would love to be that silly, stupid character in the middle of all this super sci-fi monster movie going around. And I'm just like, hey, watch me trip over my own feet. <laughs> um, and, and he tries to warn them about things. And it's just hilarious. He has those lines where he's warning people and he's like, well, yeah, I guess I've been here for so many years, but you go ahead and do what you got to (laughs) do. And they always, every time he tells them not to do something, he's the person that goes, I told you so. So I think he makes up for that. And I I don't know whether we would consider him military or civilian, but he I actually kind of gave him his own uh, bullet point, but but you're right. Like, he he is military, but he's military from... From a previous time, you know, like it's a different mindset. He's a vet. Yes, he is a vet. That's what he is. He's a veteran. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned earlier that this movie is Mm -hmm. very much a Vietnam story in a lot of ways, and I don't think that's a mistake at all. I don't think it's a mistake that he's a vet. I don't think that that's in any way incidental. Similarly, that actually that actually comes to another thing I like about the civilians is that their way of thinking is very similar to the U.S. the Western mindset. Pretty much nearing the end of the Vietnam War, it's like we did not care about this war. We don't want this war, or in this case, this proxy fight against Kong. And it's no mistake that John C. Riley has that vet mindset of. I've been through the war, I've done my duty, I don't think it was worth it to fight. I don't think it's a mistake that that's his mindset at all. And he fought in World War II, you know? I love that they push the point of, oh yeah, the war, it's war in all wars. You know, they actually put that in there. And we're in the middle, we're at the end of this other war that was a waste of lives. It really was. There's this one line in the movie that I really love where they're talking about it's like, so is the war over? Which war? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a great line. It and is. I feel like we've we've kind of naturally moved into the military topic, so I'll go and say I as an antagonist, I really like Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that he does a really good job. Again, the, another Marvel actor. Yeah, I there's like the, the one scene where uh after the initial, you know, Kong is swatting helicopters out of the sky. Uh, Sam Jackson's character crawls from the wreckage, and there's there, there's this moment where his eyes lock with Kong's, and they just look at each other. You just see like the fury in, in this guy's eyes, fury, Nick Fury. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just love that so much, and, and and it really is like it's a true Vietnam allegory. It's this thing of like we came in this country, of course, like Kong is swatting helicopters out of the sky because we were fucking bombing his home, <laughs> we were bombing his island, we started it, 
And now just because he defended himself, and I was like, oh, my guys are dead. Yeah. Or I need to get revenge for my guys who are dead. That's Vietnam. That exactly. is 100% the it Vietnam is. War. It's We came into there. We started shooting the place up. And now because they, they started successfully defending their home, now we need revenge against them for the people that we lost who shouldn't have been there to begin with. Exactly. That's exactly what this movie is. It it's is. It's a complete Vietnam metaphor. It absolutely is. It goes against it. It goes along that natural order of things. If you step in to change the natural order of things, you're responsible for it. But you're not going to have a good ride because you're pushing uphill the whole way. It's a whole Sisyphus thing. You're going to get to the top, and that boulder is going to roll over you. Yeah. Going going back to John Goodman's character, the military in this movie is really almost a perfect microcosm of the Vietnam War. John Goodman's character is the U.S. government. He wants them to be there. Doesn't particularly care about the military. He doesn't care about what the civilian wants. He wants them to be there, damn the cost, for his own grander reason. And... Most of the military that is on that island, with the exception of Sam Jackson, who kind of is the military command, most of the military on that island doesn't want to be there. They want to go. They want to leave. They don't actually care about this war. They're willing to follow orders for the most part, but this is not a war that they believe in. They don't believe in the cause. They don't actually want to get revenge on Kong. Some of them are angry, sure, but this is not their fight. Yeah. But they're forced to be in it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that kind of brings us to the actual inhabitant of this island, who's kind of the the character who sort of represents the Viet Cong in a way, which is Kong, Viet Cong. (laughs) Was that that on purpose? I didn't even think about that until I just said that. (laughs) I'm not sure, but it worked out great. It did work out great. But he's totally, he totally is the, the, the Viet Cong. Like, he's, he's... He's the one who's defending his home. And that's what they were doing. They were defending their home against these people who shouldn't have been there. And the fact that he kind of represents that is kind of why I say, to me, Kong is the most anthropomorphized of the creatures. And again, not just because he's a primate. Not just because he he looks more human than the other ones, but... He really, like, he has kind of a personality. Like, his inter- I, I think that he has some interactions with Brie Larson's character that felt like an homage to kind of the classic King mm-hmm. Kong movies of mm-hmm. you have kind of the, the, the sort of beauty and the beast going on of you have the main, you know, young woman who's the heroine of the movie who always has this connection with Kong. Like, it felt like they didn't go as deep into it as the main King Kong movies or, mm, or like, the original the Jackson one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly The, the Peter Jackson <laughs> one was definitely leaning towards bestiality near the end, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> as far as creature design, they didn't just say, okay, he's a giant gorilla, we'll leave it at that. He is much closer, I don't think accidentally, much closer to one of those missing link species between humans and apes. Because humans are technically one of the great apes we are we are a great ape species just one that went in a much less hairy direction and i don't think it's any mistake that kong is a fully upright being he walks on two legs for the most part i think it's no mistake that he is very much uh, kind of one of the link species in a very different direction than both humans and apes but obviously a much much larger one so visually i i love the design of kong and i especially love that i do love his 
his place in the movie. He is very much a defender of his home. He is a intelligent being with very much an established personality who acknowledges people. And I do love his connection with Brie Larson. Or I love his connection with all the humans, actually. Because unlike Godzilla, who recognizes humans as a species but doesn't for the most part, care about individuals. In the first movie, Kong does have uh, multiple connections with characters. He connects with Brie Larson's character through this film. Very early on, I, I made a joke at the beginning of the movie that Kong's appearance at the very beginning is when John C. Riley's character and her are fighting. Uh, I love that Kong appears, and based on the fact that they both survived the encounter and, you know, came to view in a positive light, I can't help but think, but it more or less ended up as like, look, guys, stop this shit. I'm serious. Cut it. No fighting on my island. God damn it. Yeah, I put the war in perspective. There are bigger things. There's, there's more important things to worry about. I even love his connection with uh, Samuel Jackson's character, where there is very much a mutual hatred, where as much as Samuel Jackson wants revenge on Kong, Kong clearly recognizes one way or another that uh, Samuel Jackson's character is at least partially responsible for the destruction that he was... Uh, reeking. I love the mutual this the, the mutual hatred that they have for each other, as well as again the mutual respect that he has for Brie Larson's character. He is a, actually a character, unlike you know several other Kong movies. He is actually a character with his own thoughts, journey, personality, and I yeah just loved this version. They did something with this version of Kong that they also did with the Peter Jackson version, which is that they use performance capture from a, from a human actor. They actually used two actors uh, for this. It was Terry Notary is a stunt guy who did a lot of the movement, the physicality, and then Toby Kebble, who actually plays uh, the character of Chapman in this movie, was the facial performance mm -hmm. capture for this character, and they both did a really good job playing Kong, essentially. Toby Kebbell, by the way, is one of those unsung actors. If you don't know who Toby Kebbell is, you should know who Toby Kebbell is. Toby Kebbell is, he's, he's the heir apparent to Andy Serkis. Don in War for the Planet of the Apes, he played mm -hmm. Koba. Warcraft, he played Jurotan. He's in so many movies. He, he does he does a lot of performance capture, but he's also just great every time he shows up in a live-action role. But a lot of people don't recognize him because he's kind of a chameleon. He's, he just has one of those faces. But he's such a good actor, and he's, he's one of those really unsung actors, in my opinion. Yeah. But, yeah, everything you said, Zach, I love Kong in this movie. I love Kong. I love uh, what they did with him. But I love the goddamn patience they show he has. Mm -hmm. Because all throughout the movie, he keeps looking at Sam Jackson and he's like, Alright, bitch. I see you. Back the fuck off. And he has plenty of chances to kill uh, Sam Jackson. And then finally, whenever Sam Jackson is just showing that he's relentless, he smashes the shit out of him. One smash. Boom! Mm -hmm. Proving I could have killed you at any point in this movie. And I was giving you a chance. But no, it had to be your way or the highway, so now I have to do away with you. I love that they showed these emotions going through this kaiju. I think that it made all the difference for me whenever it comes to Kong. I'm still hoping for Godzilla to win this time around <laughs> on Godzilla vs. Kong, but I know the rules and I know people are going to prefer the primate to win because we're primates. But I will say that they did a great job at creating Kong and they did a beautiful, not as good as they did with Godzilla. Mm -hmm. This is a few years later and Kong does not look as good as Godzilla looked. But they used a different software mm -hmm. to create Kong than they used to create 
Godzilla. So I will say that he looked good. His facelift looked really good, but there were some issues with the with the texturing of Kong. I didn't pick up on that as much, but I, I see what you're saying, and I think that it had to do with the fact that Kong just is on screen a lot more in this movie than Godzilla is in his movie. And I think yes. that they had to figure out ways that they could that they could do it without having to render for 400 years, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they, they had to figure out a way they could do it. So I think that that's, that, I think that's ultimately the reason for, for that Absolutely. difference in CGI quality. I still think he looks great. I, I really do think he looks great. But I can definitely see, mm-hmm. like, Godzilla in the 2014 movie looks real good. It really does look real good when he shows up. I just had a thought. It's a sneaky little thought that I'm not entirely certain whether or not this was the reason for something, but... Now I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons that Samuel Jackson sets Kong on fire is both because that's napalm, that's Vietnam, but that's also a sneaky, underhanded little part of me wonders, I wonder if they did that so that they had less hair and crispier hair to deal with in the final fight scene when he's moving around so much. It's like, yeah, the reason we don't have to have so much hair moving around, it's stiff. It was just on fire a minute ago. Give us a break. That's that's actually <laughs> a be. good thought. Could be, could be a little column A, a little column B. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've touched on John C. Riley a bit already, but I do want to touch on him again because he really, I agree with you, Troy. He's my favorite character in the movie. Mm. I, I, I love the fact, I love the cold open of this movie of seeing the young version of him land on the island with the Japanese soldier and having them fight each other, and it's a really cool fight. Like, immediately, the, the movie starts, and I'm like, this is a really interestingly shot movie. Like, mm-hmm. some of the camera shots and things like that, it's like, it's just really, it's a really interestingly directed movie. And uh, and I just love the fact that I understand why they the, the Japanese guy was dead before the start of the movie. In a way, it would have been nice to have actually seen him as well, but I love the idea that the two of them started off as enemies, and they became brothers mm-hmm. over over the, the years of having to be be together and i love the fact that john c Riley keeps his, his friend's katana mm-hmm. and he knows a few japanese phrases he says to himself at one point under his breath death before dishonor mm-hmm. in, in japanese i love that moment so much honestly the part emotionally in this movie that actually kind of makes me tear up a little bit is that end credit scene of him showing up and meeting his, seeing his mm-hmm. his old wife and his son for the first time, and the fact that it's shot like with this like old footage Super 8 camera, it, it makes it feel like documentary footage of a vet coming home, mm-hmm. and it was so it was so effective. It just yeah, that's the part that tugs on the heartstrings, and then seeing him finally. Eat, eat a hot dog and drink a beer while watching the game. It was like this is this is such a perfect way to end this movie. And and in a weird way, like as much as they should never have gone to that island to begin with, I feel that he had to survive to the end of the movie because that's like the one good thing that came out of this whole trip is the fact that yes. they saved him. Because if not, he would have he would have died. He would have lived the rest of his life on that island. Absolutely. I mentioned before I like Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson's characters. I really do. They are good. I love John C. Riley's character. He he is for me the very the very human heart of the movie as soon as he appears. You mentioned earlier that he held on to the katana that he knew some Japanese. I also love that in one of the few fights that 
the humans have with the uh, the skull crawlers. He also apparently knows how to use that katana as well, and that tells me that there were years where these two were roaming the island. He was learning how to use the katana from his brother that he made from this war, that they were going on these adventures, learning about these creatures, and... One of those adventures sadly did end with the death of Gumpei. I want to see that movie. I, I want to see, see that the movie, movie too. with the younger version. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that would be a movie I would be 100% on board for, is just just seeing them learn this island, learn the adventures. I also loved the interaction with the natives. The natives in this movie were really interesting. I think this movie was really smart about paying homage to and playing the opposite in a lot of ways of the original Kong where in the original movie, Kong represented the fierce unknown. He was this monster from the dark jungles. The natives were sacrificing people to them as his god. They were beasts. And here, the natives do generally revere Kong, not because he is a fearsome evil monster, but because he's their protector. And they're not bloodthirsty monsters. They are natives. They have their own thing going on. They have their own lives, their own culture, their own vast and interesting depictions. I love how not only do they have their own beautiful clothing and makeup. Side note, the clothing and makeup for the natives in this movie is gorgeous. I love those designs. They have their own interesting way of showing history when they paint a mural they don't paint it across a single wall they set up these stones and paint it in different pieces that's just a super cool visual design i love that they are you know distinctly themselves i also like that john c riley's character maybe he did learn their language but whatever language they have it does not appear to be verbal but he understands them and they've come to understand him i also love that for all the journey of john c riley's character for all the journey of the main protagonists and the civilians the natives understand we are not really here to change the outcome of this one way or another they don't prevent them from leaving they don't try and you know tell them not to leave or tell them that it's a bad idea but they also don't seem to actively help them do it either it's like okay you guys are going on your own journey and we respect that and we'll open the gate to let you in we'll open the gate to let you leave but we have our own lives and we frankly just don't care that much about you yeah i love that they made the natives people Mm -hmm. i love that they didn't make them caricatures like they have in so many other kong movies in so many other Kong movies, they're seen as dumb, unintelligent caricatures. And in this one, they're people. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they have all these aspects to them. They have a society. They have their life. They have a religion where they worship this guardian. It's beautiful. They're not seen as stupid. They're just seen as simple people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's gorgeous. One of my favorite shots that really hammers that home is when the boat is leaving. We see the outer gate open and it's a really intricate mechanism it is obviously brilliantly and intelligently crafted by the natives they're not idiots they're not stupid you're exactly right they are simple because they have chosen to be that is the civilization that they have made they could obviously build more interesting machinery but that is not the life that they want absolutely and we and we touched on this but of course kong is kind of defending these people against the creatures of skull island which the creatures i agree with you troy the creatures are really cool and really creative and i like how varied they are you know like those freaky birds that tore that one guy apart which was like what <laughs> yes. like, i mean there there are parts of this movie that that, that are a horror movie which i i loved i i love that 
that aspect of it. I love the scene where they're they're in the the kind of um, the area with all the, the toxic mm-hmm. gas and the skull skull crushers or whatever they're called. Not skull crushers. Skull but, crawlers. It's a, uh, it's a dumb name. Skull I, crawlers. I, I, I never said it out I loud. I love before. that one. <laughs> I just said it out loud. <laughs> Sounds kind of stupid now that I said it. <laughs> Sounds kind of stupid now that I said it. But yeah, no, the skull, the, the skull crawlers, which are actually really frightening and interesting uh, creatures, including the huge one that Kong fights at, at the end. But just there are so many different weird creatures. And that to me is the key to in any movie that's about Skull Island. To me, the key is just making all the different creatures as weird as possible. Mm-hmm. That to me is the whole point of Skull Island. And I think that this movie nailed that. Well, it, it goes back to the very original King Kong where you had the Ray Harryhausen uh, still motion Tyrannosaurus and mm-hmm. the Pteranodon. And you had Kong fighting all these huge dinosaurs. You know, it is a throwback to that, and it's so gorgeous. And they took their time with the biodiversity of the island. You're absolutely right. It is just gorgeous. And it's creatures that you would imagine if there was a monster island, this is Galapagos. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. It's it's a sci-fi Galapagos island. My favorite and least favorite for the same reasons, is when they're in the bamboo jungle and then they turn around and the soldier just has a bamboo shoot going down through him. And they look up and there is this titanic bamboo spider. And that is both my favorite and my least favorite because that is a brilliant creature. That is a creature that absolutely makes sense. Of course. Of course it looks like the bamboo that it stalks its prey in. Of course, it has these shoots that it can just stab someone with at any point, and it can web them up and, you know, bring them up into its maw that it just stalks from above. You know, that makes sense from a creature perspective, and it's terrifying. That is goddamn terrifying to know that any tree, any shoot of bamboo around you might be this enormous, terrifying (laughs) thing watching you from above. And it's just such a gorgeously hideous creature that I just it's my favorite because it is a horrible movie monster and it's my least favorite because it is a horrible movie monster and I really wanted them to just get the fuck away it's like holy shit get the fuck out of there god (laughs) that was the stuff of nightmares seriously a moving forest that can kill your ass yes (laughs) I loved it so much fun yeah and what do we think of some of the uh, the fights in this movie I know there's one big fight of uh, Kong versus the queen or skull crawler uh, is kind of the big climax of the movie it's yeah it's a, it's a good monster fight you know it's fun it's fun to watch so one of my favorite fights is uh, also an anticlimactic one but also because it's anticlimactic is when Kong is in the river and Chapman's there, and he's just, you know, washing his head, and then Kong is also washing his head, and you just have this moment of connection, like, they're, you know, Kong doesn't even notice him, but you see that flicker across Chapman's face, where it's like, he's just going through the same shit I am right now, and you see these tentacles rise out of the water, they choke Kong, and he just stops on it, and then he just starts eating, it's like, that's lunch, that's Tuesday. This shit happens every fucking week for Kong. No, like, I love that. I love that scene so much because you literally do get the sense that that shit just happens to Kong every day. He just walks through the water. Some weird tentacle thing is like, ah, all right. 
know? He's so yes. casual. He's so casual the way that he just kills it, just eats it. It's so fun. Yes. It is it is absolute it is an absolute gorgeous scene and it it adds to that storytelling. It's mm-hmm. it's like George Lucas built uh, world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, he walks in, he's doing his thing and then all of a sudden it's like, "Ah, fuck Cthulhu. <laughs> fuck you." Please take lunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Calamari! As far as the human fights go, I love the scene where they're in that the, the kind of the mass grave with with the toxic gas and the the fumes and everything. That's such a cool sequence. It's such a you know, it's scary. It's cool. I love. It. It's so Metal Gear, and I'm gonna get back to this in a second. But the scene where Tom Hiddleston puts on the gas mask and is fighting through with the katana, just the visuals of that is like this. This is literally something out of a video game, and I love it so much. You know. So I agree. One one scene that I'm not sure if I love or hate, I kind of hate. It's actually my least favorite moment in the movie, but I also don't... I see where they're going with it, and I appreciate what they're trying to do, and I'm like, okay, I... You can keep it in the movie, but you're on thin fucking ice with that. <laughs> is when Colonel, they're running away from the big skull crawler, and the Colonel decides to sacrifice himself. He pulls out the grenades, and that is such a beautiful moment... And you can, I love the emotion on his face when he's just waiting for it, accepting death. And then the skull crawler smacks him across the canyon and his entire death is wasted. And I hate that moment, but also I get it. It's like, okay, so this is not a dumb creature. It can think and it can recognize what you're about to do. But also, I hate wasted heroic sacrifices so much. I... I actually liked that, but to me, it could, it could tie it into that Vietnam, uh, it tied into the Vietnam uh, metaphor mm. of, did. like, mm. every death was, was wasted, you know? Like, yeah. it, it, this yes. guy is trying to lay down his life for, for his men, and... And that's, and, that's yeah. why I wouldn't rewrite it. That's why I wouldn't rewrite it at all. It's a good moment. It's just... This moment is, is the Vietnam metaphor, mm. because you have so many soldiers that went there because they signed up to go there. And they had this idea of romantic heroism. And they were like, I'm fighting for my country. And Sam, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a sacrifice that didn't need to be done. Um, we were already doing the draft. We were already doing so much bullshit for that war. And you have this character that rises up and he decides that he's going to sacrifice his life so that his buddies live. But he, he didn't have a reason to do this sacrifice. He just wanted to be a hero in that moment. And the lizard was like, <laughs> it's, it's nature. It goes along with that mortality thing. If you want to be the hero, it's going to be wasted. Most heroes waste their opportunities. They really do. And it's because they're not, they want to be remembered as a martyr more than anything. And that's how he was. It was a romantic gesture. And that's how I feel about romantic gestures. Get that shit out of here. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Everyone wants to be a hero, but no one wants to stick around and do the work. Exactly. Yes. Let's go ahead and wind down and give this one a score. The main tick that I have for this one is the special effects. Of Kong. Kong feels like a bad video game, like I'm playing PS2 again. And I understand why they did it. They sacrificed a little bit of style to get everything else in. But as far as the script, as far as the characters, as far as the plot, everything lines up. As far as the biodiversity, the creatures, they're 
gorgeous. It's amazing. Kong, the way that he has played, it's just beautiful. So I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Because the only thing that I'm taking off for is not taking that extra time to render Kong. Respect the ape, dude. Respect <laughs> the ape. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of scenes where they wanted to get the fluidity of these characters down, so it sacrificed, as you said, a little bit of the style, a little bit of the scale, I think, was what I was missing from this movie, especially as compared to Godzilla 2014, is that... The creatures are wonderful, they're beautiful, but I am missing the scale a little bit. They don't sell me on the size and weight of everything that is going on, particularly Kong. He feels basically like a human in a world where there's a bunch of tiny humans around. It, it feels like everything else is small, not that he's huge. That's my nitpick with the movie. But everything else is fantastic, so I'm I'm gonna give this a nine out of ten. The CG worked for me. I think that it was it was tough because it, not not only what we were talking about as far as being able to render that much, but like it's also hard when the CG is so much in bright daylight the entire movie. You also can't really mm. hide things. But I also understand like for this kind of Vietnam jungle aesthetic they were going for. The, the overall look of the film and the lighting of the film and everything is, is pretty much is pretty much spot on for, for what they were going for. This movie is directed by a guy named Jordan Vogt Roberts, who this was his first studio movie. He had done one indie feature, I think, before this. And he did such a good job of the kind of political commentary mixed with really fun spectacle and action. And, and just making a really fun movie that also has these really great serious beats to it. Which is why I am so excited that he is the one directing the Metal Gear Solid movie. He is, he is, he is directing Metal Gear Solid st starring Oscar Isaac. And he is a massive fan of Metal Gear Solid. The fact that, that John C the fact that John C. Riley's boat is called the Gray Fox, that is not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. That was 100% an homage. And he has said in interviews that that was his homage to Metal Gear. And then after making this movie, the studio decided to give him Metal Gear. And I'm so excited to see his take on, on that material. Because based on this movie, I think he is the perfect guy. And I just want to see this guy make more movies in general. I think that this is the mm. best directed movie in this universe. Zach, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. I liked this movie the first time, and I really loved it the second time. It's well done. So let's move on to Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Woo! So, last yeah. And, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest, last and least. <laughs> My opinion. We'll <laughs> no, we'll, we'll get to that, too. So, the first one, I know we don't like talking about the humans in this movie, but they're, they're in the movie so much that we're talking about. So let's talk about the family at the heart of this movie particular movie you've got uh you know kyle chandler vera farmiga and millie bobby brown of these three i really like millie bobby brown i actually think that she's the best human character in the movie other than ken watanabe who i'm gonna get to my thoughts on him in this movie in a second but i really liked her in this and a lot of it had to do with the fact it wasn't even that there was so much as far as the script goes 
I just think Millie Bobby Brown is like, she is like out acting like this, you know, I think she was like 15 or she's like 15 or something. I think when they shot this, she's like out acting everybody else in the movie, like just straight up. She is so much better. I love Millie Bobby Brown. I, I can see that Troy is just like, thinks I'm insane. Troy, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown is one of the most amazing actors of her yeah. time. She is phenomenal. She takes her time. She does her research. She gets into the role. She does the greatest job that she can. But I'm going to tell you right now, Vera Farmiga and Charles Dance stole this motherfucking movie. (laughs) Tywin Lannister, baby. Tywin Lannister. (laughs) But I love Vera Farmiga. She came at this from a from a way that you would not expect. It's very different than her typecast has been. She has been the matron. She has been that that motherly consort, that uh, the mother archetype. You know, we we see her in that in uh, uh, Bates Motel and in all of these other movies that she's done. The Conjuring. She's always been like this supportive regular female character and i've always wanted now i love what she did with norma i love what she did with norma in bates motel but to see her sink her teeth into this character that loses her child and decides that she's not going to make that a wasted loss that she's on board with allowing Tyrion lannister to bring about this natural order, which is very different than what John Goodman's monarch was doing. But to see her come on board and act like she was being taken hostage and to see this dysfunctional mother come out and be like, okay, for my daughter, I am going to let all hell break loose. Because that's where her, her mindset is. I, I fucking love that. She's my favorite character of the movie. Because she she sacrifices in the end. She makes the mistakes. And she pays the ultimate price. Because she knows she has to. And she redeems herself. Um, I still get to... I watched it last night. Just because I knew we were doing this. I watched it last night. And I was like, God damn you, Vera. God damn you for being so amazing. <laughs> so yeah my, my thing with them so I'm, I'm gonna go over all three Vera I like how her character is very consistent throughout the movie in that her goal never changes she intends to free the titans she intends to openly and directly intends to have humans step down as the dominant species she's always on board with that the only reason she makes a redemption is because she's a scientist, she's presented with new information, and she changes her method based on that, but not her goal. Her goal is always that, and that never changes. It's just that at the end she realizes, okay, Ghidorah is clearly not part of this. He's not part of the natural order. He's gotta go. We gotta do something about that. So I will change what I'm doing, but not why. And I appreciate that. Millie Bobby Brown, I like that she is, in, in a lot of ways, I've, I've seen some people talk about her. And one thing I think is very appropriate is that it's not a mistake that she's the one that takes the alpha signal and goes later on. Because though she is but little, she'd be fierce. She has 
the personality in a lot of ways of these kaiju. She is like a kaiju made tiny. And especially I love her moment when she is confronting Ghidorah. Yeah, she's confronting Ghidorah. She's got nothing. She doesn't have teeth. She doesn't have claws. Ghidorah is about to annihilate her with a beam. And she stands there and she fucking roars at him. And I'm like, I like this kid. I like this kid a lot. And then there's the father who I hate absolutely. And why the fuck is he the protagonist of this film? God, why the fuck is he the protagonist of this film? Fucking for real. I hate his performance. Fuck that motherfucker. I hate his performance. I hate his writing. He is so (laughs) fucking boring. The way he's written is so fucking boring. He is protagonist number 354 that we got off a shelf somewhere. And I don't know the main actor's name, and I don't care to. Oh, Kyle Chandler's great. I love Kyle Chandler. Not in this movie, but in general, he's great. He stays at a 10 the whole movie, when he should have been going through an emotional and interesting journey and ride. But no, he is like, I'm angry about things, (laughs) and I am going to be angry at you about various different things, but I am never going to stop shouting. Because this is the only volume I know. <laughs> I hate him so You know so who much. Kyle Chandler is? Really? He's been in so many movies. He's been in a Kyle lot, Chandler. but yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just his character is like... He's not great in this movie. He's not great he's, in this... he's usually good. He's usually good, but he's not great in this movie. I agree with that. A lot of ways I blame that on the writing, because I think that as an actor, he maybe should have tried to elevate the character somewhat. It's very clear that he... The character, the character's not well written, and it's just very clear that he's not trying. And you know what? Everyone has those days. Everyone has those days. And well, he wasn't trying because he was the one actor who realized the garbage movie that he was in. Then yes. this was a Mad Lib screenplay. <gasps> this is a Mad Lib screenplay. You shut your whore mouth. No, this is straight up. This is just <laughs> fill in the blank. They took a generic screenplay and just filled in the blanks of like characters and terms. Mm-hmm. This is complete Mad Lib screenwriting. I'll, I'll come back to this. Vera Farmiga, as an actor, did the best she could with the horrible writing for her character that she had. Okay, like, here's the thing. Her motivation makes no fucking sense. That She's going from, like, okay, so we're, we're slowly destroying the world, overpopulation, okay... Not actually true in the real world, but true in the movie world. That's yeah, fine. overpopulation like, <laughs> is the That's like a racist myth. There's definitely not anywhere near enough humans to ruin the planet right now. The people that are ruining the planet are a very tiny percentage. Yeah, but the planet is being is being ruined or whatever. Like, I yeah. get that. It's a, it's a movie thing. There is a huge fucking jump to make from we're destroying this planet with pollution to I'm going to unleash a bunch of giant monsters to kill everybody. I don't know. It's like what? Because like if if here's the thing, I buy it. With Ken, I do it. I don't buy it at all. I buy Ken Watanabe. Ken Watanabe's thing is we're just gonna let nature take its course and we're not gonna interfere in it. She's like actually interfering in it by waking the Titans up before it's time for them to wake up. That's what she's doing, and that's the mistake that she's making. And I just. I just can't buy the mindset of anybody who would just make the decisions that she would make. Even if you think that the world is in trouble, there's so many other contingencies to try of like, what are some ways I as a scientist can try and figure out ways to reduce carbon emissions or to, you know, figure out, I don't know. It just, 
It's just a huge fucking leap to, I'm gonna, like, destroy all the cities with kaiju. Like, I just never really got... It is, it's a complete bullshit. Like, the whole thing of overpopulation and we're ruining the planet has just become the lazy screenwriter thing of just justifying people just doing bad shit in order to create conflict in the story. It's what Thanos... I'm sorry, but it's what Thanos did in, in the MCU too. And I yeah. love the MCU, and I love Thanos, but his argument is bullshit, too. Yes. It really is. If you, <laughs> well, could, had, if you could kill... Had, half Joss Whedon, <laughs> had Joss Whedon finished Avengers, Thanos would have made a lot more sense because Joss Whedon set it up to where Thanos was trying to uh, woo death. Yeah. That was set up from the very beginning. And, and we'll, we'll yeah, get, you're, in, you're we'll right get into that. Like, I, I was actually, I was fine with what they did with Thanos, but just through the lens of Thanos is not a rational person. You know, it's it's like, no. because if you, could, if you could kill half the people of the universe, you could also double the resources. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, whatever. But I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie, whenever it comes to waking up the Titans, it's like opening Pandora's box. And that's exactly what this story is. If you get Pandora's yeah. box, will you open it? And it's about goddamn time someone opened Pandora's box. I'd open it <laughs> just to see yeah. shit that go wrong. But I'm not right in the head either. <laughs> yeah. I just did not get... I, I really did not like her character at all. Like, it's funny that she's your favorite character, Troy. She's probably my least favorite character in the entire movie, to be honest. <laughs> but, again, I liked Millie Bobby... I liked Millie Bobby Brown. Like, she was still written by the same people that wrote the rest of the movie. So, like, her, her dialogue was still terrible. But she, she was still enough of an audience connection point, And her performance shined through despite the weakness of the script. And I enjoyed her character because of that. Uh, you had mentioned Charles Dance before, and this is kind of a good segue into the military and scientists of this movie. Charles Dance, to me, I really didn't like him either because, like, I like him as an actor fine, but his character is just bad for the sake of being bad, especially in the post credit scene of this movie. There is no reason for him to bring back Ghidorah other than just to create more conflict for, for a future movie. There is no reason for it. There's no reason for anything. Like, they say that he's, like, an eco-terrorist or something like that. He's just evil for the sake of being evil. He's a complete one-dimensional bad guy. And that's what... That, Sometimes you need a flat villain. Yeah. Sure, he, I guess. I just... Here's he the just problem said, with him as a villain. Is My thing with him is that he is menacing. He is constantly there. He's always on the edge of the thing. And he fucking finishes literally everything that he... Not only wants to do, but everything that he does, he does less than halfway into the movie. He unleashes Ghidorah, and then the rest of the time he's like, my job's here done. I don't gotta do shit. He literally doesn't yeah. do shit for the rest of the movie. You watch it again. He doesn't do a goddamn nope. thing for the entire rest of the film, except scowl and be evil. He's just like, alright, well, my goal is to wake up all the monsters, and they're awake now, so go me. Go team. And he has no other effect <laughs> on the rest of the film past that point. And then the post credit scenes makes even dumber sense because, like, him being negligent about Ghidorah coming back is like, okay, what can I do about it? I don't give a shit. But then him actively deciding, it's like, okay, so my entire stated goal was to bring balance to the world, screw humanity. I just found out Ghidorah does not bring balance to the world and he is, in fact, an evil-minded bastard. 
I'm gonna bring him back just to stir shit. No, and that's his thing. His entire motivation is just to stir shit. He he claims he's trying to save the world. He just wants to see. Th- he he's basically the audience member of a Godzilla movie. Like, I just want to see monster fights. I just want to see like cities get destroyed. It just. He's basically me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see shit happen. I just want to see him fight. <laughs> but that's not good writing because they wrote a character who has, is, he's a villain who has no discernible motivations whatsoever. It's like, Vera Farmiga's motivations don't make sense, but at least she has a motivation. He has no motivation the entire movie for any of the things he does. It really. <laughs> he's still a better villain than Voldemort. I mean, think about it. Voldemort couldn't take over a high school. I mean, he almost ended the world. <laughs> One thing that I think would have improved Charles Dance's character and this movie in a way is if they just had him say the quiet part out loud and just had him literally say, I want to see giant monsters fight. I don't, I'm here to just start <laughs> shit. Yes! I'm here to attack people Absolutely. and I'm having a great time. Should have been his stated goal. If, it's just you know, like... if he was just completely psychotic, like, I feel like I could have got, got on board for that. Yeah. I feel like, because, like, the way Charles Dance, I think the reason I don't even like the way Charles Dance plays the character is he's playing the character as if the character has some kind of goal. It's like, oh, yes, I have an evil plan that I'm doing. But the character does it. Like, if he was just, like, the Joker, if he just wanted to see chaos happen, that would have been a better take for that character, I think. But that's how I took it, is that he was just the Joker. Yeah. He just wants to wake up these monsters to see what happens. You're absolutely right. But that's also my interpretation, because I would be the I would be the dumb motherfucker that opens Pandora's <laughs> box just to see what happens. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, on the other side of it, we have Monarch, who makes a weird evolution in this movie, and I'm going to get to why that I think that evolution is weird. So, in Godzilla, they were very much, they were an organization that was studying these creatures, but that's it. They were just studying them. They were vaguely aware of them, but they were like a very real-world organization. It's like, if we had a government branch that was just taking a look at this. In Kong Skull Island... Again, that's the same thing. They are an organization that is aware of this. They are a secretive organization, much like the FBI or CIA, but that's about where it ends. And then they're fucking S.H.I.E.L.D. in this movie, and I'm like, when did that happen? What the hell? And the reason that's perplexing is because they build these giant bases. They build this giant aircraft carrier super ship and these subs, and they have all these probes and this advanced technology... And the reason that's perplexing to me is because while that makes sense in a MonsterVerse like 30 years, like some ways down the road, where the monsters have been around for a while and you have to have humanity adapt just to live around them, the reason it's perplexing is because Monarch still doesn't do shit! They can't do shit. (laughs) They fail to recognize that they cannot do shit. That they are absolutely inconsequential in literally every single fight scene. Like, Rodan, I'm going to get to Rodan in a second, but the first thing I'll say about Rodan, and you can put this on record, is that he's a little bitch in this movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He is. We're going to get back to that in a second, but the first thing I'll put on record is he's a little bitch in this movie. And they can't even fight Rodan. They literally can't do a goddamn thing to Rodan, the least consequential of these titans in this film. And they can't even do anything against Larval Mothra. Baby Mothra, they can't do anything against. So I find it weird to try and portray them as hyper-competent 
as having all this cool advanced tech when it's like, you still can't do anything. You This is not impressive. Your giant flagship just is a... It's basically like you just built a giant statue of a dick in the ground. It's like, all right, that's very cool. Doesn't do shit. It's not important at all. And that's ultimately our problem with the scientists in this movie is they're not important at all. And I don't care about them. And they're not going through an emotional journey or presenting an interesting point of view. Which, again, they're presenting an interesting point of view in the first Godzilla. But for some reason, we're supposed to pretend like they're important or impressive for some reason. It's like, they're not. I enjoy Bradley Whitford's uh, performance in this. That's the guy with the glasses. I thought he was annoying as and hell. And the gray hair. And... <laughs> <laughs> I hate I, him, I too. enjoy him. <laughs> I also think that, I think that what it comes down to is that Monarch is splitting. We are seeing Monarch split. And the real monarch is the good scientists. And this shadow monarch, we're seeing like, um, I think they're taking a page out of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I think that you hit it right on the head. I think that their Hydra, uh, uh, Dance's monarch is Hydra, and this other monarch is the one that wants to stay in, um, but they're having this internal fight and they don't know who is who. And that's why uh, Dance's character comes in and just starts destroying because this is the second part of a trilogy kong is not a part of this trilogy kong is a bonus movie that gives you a background for this third part of the trilogy that's coming up we had the introduction in 2014 and then we went from that to now we're having this godzilla 2 which is the setup and as as the second movie of a trilogy it did its part it, it splattered everything, and it gave us enough of a story to where when this third one comes around, it's going to make everything make sense. And that's the way that I took it. Um, the splintering of Monarch, because you have two different Monarch sides, and Millie Bobby Brown will be one of the ones that is going to lead because her parents were scientists in this, and she's been around it her whole life. So we have that. And it's also... The, the death of Sirizawa leading up into handing it off to this Millie Bobby Brown who gladly takes it and runs with it, and even her mother in the movie killing herself off. It's a metaphor of the old must pass, and the new generation has to pick up that flag and run with it. So we're seeing these different archetypes become newer for us if that's making any sense whatsoever. Uh-huh. So we're seeing that same uh, scientist and military fight that we saw in the first one, that dynamic. And we're seeing how if we go on this natural side, how bad it can get or how it, it should be. And then we're seeing the military on the opposite side. But the military is just the same as this bad part of Monarch. So I think that's what this movie's job was. To bring in a whole lot of havoc to show what happens whenever you let things get out of their order. Like you said, Sam, Vera Farmiga was wrong for releasing the Titans. She was. Mm -hmm. And this movie explicitly says that. And that's the reason why she has to die in the end. Uh, There's no way to get around that. Sometimes when a character does. Vader, he came back to the good side, just like Vera did. But he still had to die because he had made the wrong decisions. Same thing with her. 
um, there's a price to pay. It's these archetypes. Whenever you're making a trilogy, you have to have these archetypes in, in throughout the whole trilogy. So that's how I'm taking it. And that's why, that's why I truly enjoyed the carnage in the second part. You'll see most second parts of the trilogy to where they're just kind of lull. But this one didn't take that. They had to amp you up because the first one was lull. The first one showed you where we're going and, okay, the creature's here. And the second one is taking you on this journey. And, of course, Skull Island was just there to have fun and to build Kong's side of the story. Yeah, and I, 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 I hear what you're saying, and I think that you have some good takes on that, Troy. I also think that you put a lot more thought into this movie than the people who actually made this movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, <laughs> The problem with this movie for me is not that it's formulaic, because formulas exist because they work, particularly in this kind of blockbuster mm -hmm. format. You have to be a little bit formulaic sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can't. You usually can't get like super weird and experimental when you're doing a blockbuster popcorn-type movie. The problem is not that it's formulaic. The problem is that it doesn't even try and disguise its formula. Like... Here's the thing about it. I really do mean it when I say this movie feels like a Mad Libs screenplay. It feels like they it just has a bunch of generic cliche lines of dialogue. It's like, okay, we have to have the comic relief character, so here's Bradley Whitford. We're doing like the end of Act 2 going into Act 3. We have to have a heart-wrenching death moment, so we're going to kill off Ken Watanabe because he's the character people care about. I think I, I hear what you're saying about the mortality angle and, and passing off the torch and dying off the old. I still think for me, and this is this is a similar thing to what I was saying with, with Brian Cranston in the first movie, I think it would have been more interesting if... I would have actually preferred that they kept Ken Watanabe a lot for the third movie. Because I think that it's important to have a character who can be like your through-line character who you're following for the entire thing. And like now we're, we're I know Millie Bobby Brown is going to be in the next one, but she still was introduced. Like I like the idea of somebody coming from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that they killed him off, they had to just create, it just felt like kind of a contrived situation that they had to engineer in a way where he had to sacrifice himself. It's like, Oh, why don't we go and send in a drone? Oh, our drones are broken. Of course they fucking are, because you have to have the the guy sacrifice himself. Like it just it just felt dumb to me. Like plot device. It was a total plot device. The yeah. one thing I'm going to give that sequence. Sorry, the two things I'm going to give that sequence is one: Ken Watanabe gave his all. Oh, Ken Watanabe sure. throughout both of these movies just gave his fucking all, no matter how stupid whatever particular plot line. Like Godzilla 2014, that wasn't a problem. This one. There were some stupid plot lines, but he was giving 110% the whole time, and I give him credit for that. One thing, and especially when we get to the other kaiju, that I'm going to give this movie... I'm not super familiar with the MonsterVerse, but from what I've read up, one thing this movie apparently does do well is homages to earlier works and earlier MonsterVerse concepts, and being weirdly faithful to the monsters, if nothing else. And and let's be honest, uh, if nothing else is a is a very likely possibility for much of this movie. But one thing that I will say is that one of the earlier works had uh, apparently character by apparently the same name, like apparently the same er character um, that uh, Ken Watanabe's version was based off of. In an earlier work, had sacrificed himself in a similar way to set off a weapon to destroy Godzilla. And one thing that this monster verse is keeping 
weirdly consistent is that when it makes a it'll homage an earlier work but somewhat reverse the effect where you will have kong and the natives kong meeting with a native earlier but it's a matter of mutual appreciation and respect in this one ken watanabe's character surazawa sacrifices himself not to destroy godzilla but to save him to try and bring him back because he recognizes the need that the world has for this fairly unbiased protector as godzilla is that is godzilla's main thing is that he is an unbiased protector of the world he cares about balance he does care about the world but he is very much willing to destroy any fool who gets in his way of that and so that that is something i will give this movie is that is that is an homage but a bit of a contrived one thing this movie also does well in a weird way is playing with a theme that is actually true not just of this specific iteration of the MonsterVerse, but of the larger, you know, MonsterVerse that came before, is that it does actually recognize, acknowledge, and adhere true to the theme of death and resurrection. Um, as Godzilla himself, Mothra, many of these monsters have died multiple times and come back, and that is... In fact, you could guess the larger theme of the world is that is what the monsters are here for, is to destroy the world to allow it to regrow. Um, destroy the world as it currently is to allow a... so that a new one can actually come forth. And so I actually did appreciate the death and return of Godzilla from that perspective as, you know, the nuke that resurrects Godzilla also literally destroys the ancient city of worshippers. In the recognition that doing so will allow the actual, the important part, Godzilla, to come back. And the humans uh, to live on. And who knows, maybe the humans in this universe will start building new cities to Godzilla. <laughs> so I did actually appreciate that. That is one of the things I am actually going to put as a tally mark in favor of this movie. That's absolutely how I feel. I have nothing to say on the death and return because you just said it all. Hmm. Yeah, and I it's pretty much gave my thoughts. I just thought the whole situation was a contrived way to kill off Ken Watanabe to just create a tear-jerk <laughs> moment for the audience. That's, that's kind of my thing. It was well shot. Like, the sound design of it was really good and the visuals. Like, that that was that was good. I just I just didn't like it from, from a story perspective. But I like, I like your take on it, Zach. I also think that you're putting more thought into this than the people who made this movie. But <laughs> In case you're wondering, I really enjoyed this movie so much. <laughs> Let's talk about the other kaiju. We got Mothra is introduced in this movie. I enjoyed Mothra. I thought Mothra was pretty good. Yeah. So... Mothra is actually my favorite part of this movie, hands down. I'm, I'm just not going to lie about that. I love her. One of the interesting things I like about Mothra is that, um, and this is kind of true to, again, like I said, this movie is weirdly faithful to history of the MonsterVerse, considering how weirdly formulaic a lot of the rest of it is. I like that Mothra at no point kills any human during this movie. When she's in her larval form, when she's knocking scientists about, She's picking them up and throwing them into a web she just spun on the wall. Mothra is, in this movie, and in pretty much every uh, iteration, a deeply fierce protector of uh, Godzilla, and especially of humanity. She is, even more so than Kong in a lot of ways, the biggest kaiju friend of humanity. And she's also, like, one of the weirdly... I know it's mentioned that Kong was uh, weirdly anthropomorphized. Mothra, in a lot of ways, is also anthropomorphized. One thing that I appreciate is that I mentioned that death and resurrection is a huge part of the MonsterVerse. For Mothra, that goes doubly so, because 
of all the monsters, she is the one who explicitly resurrects. That is part of her whole deal, is that, yes, she does die in this movie, but she's died before. That's part of her deal. She resurrects and literally a new version of Mothra with the memories and personality of the old Mothra comes back. And they even tease that at the end of this, is that they do find a new Mothra egg. She'll return, but yeah, she is very used to dying herself in this universe. And she has, uh, much like Godzilla, much like Kong, she has she's a very intelligent kaiju. Um, she explicitly tries to lead humanity to find Godzilla to try and save him. She's explicitly there to guard them. When she has her fight with Rodan at the end, she takes him out. She doesn't kill him, and she almost certainly knows that, but she does take him out. With So she, I love how she's this fierce, protective figure who is willing to die to protect Godzilla, partially because she knows she'll come back, but also because she does know that's the right thing to do. That it is important that She can see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she can see the bigger picture and she knows that in order... She can't defeat Ghidorah. And she knows that to take Ghidorah out, she has to sacrifice herself, become that energy, and help re-energize Godzilla. So together, they kind of do that. There is um, something I actually didn't notice until after the most recent rewatch. I was actually just rewatching the fight scene, is that when Mothra sacrifices herself to give Godzilla that last power-up, where he becomes that essentially walking nuclear furnace, something I noticed is that when he releases those energy pulses, those blasts, you can both hear her call and also literally see her wings in the blast. I actually yes. missed that almost every time I watched the movie. I had to rewatch that on YouTube. So she is literally a part of him in that final fight. Yes. I I get teary-eyed every time I watch that it's so beautifully done. So beautifully so done. So her energy so her energy like became a part of Godzilla, is that what happened? At least temporarily. Yeah. I'm yes. gonna be honest, I always check out during that entire climax. Like I'm just <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, they, they kind of intertwine their souls. Yeah. It's pretty okay, I'll awesome. take your word that that's what happened, because I yeah. think I, I always, like, my, my, <laughs> my brain always just checks out towards the end of this movie, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I'm also going to make good on my promise from earlier on explaining when I say that Rodan is a little bitch. Rodan is a little bitch. <laughs> he bursts out of the volcano where people have been worshipping him as a god. He goes off to fight Ghidorah, but as soon as he as soon as he loses, he just does whatever the fuck Ghidorah wants. He has no morals. He has no actual he's apparently semi intelligent enough, but he doesn't care that people have been worshipping him. He doesn't care that people, you know, have been caring for him, and he doesn't care which side he's on. He's just like, I'm on whichever side is good for Rodam. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, they they captured the spirit of Rodan in this movie yeah. so fucking well. He is that imp that will go to whatever side he thinks is winning. And even in the end, he bows down to Godzilla when he sees, oh, I'm getting a bass kick. <laughs> I'm not worth it. Not yet, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ghidorah is, he is a giant three-headed dragon, and he acts like it. I will say I do find it interesting that the heads do kind of have their own personality. There's two things about the heads. That, yes. The two reasons that I find that interesting are that, one, there was clearly a head that was much stupider than the others. <laughs> At the very yep. beginning, like, yeah, this guy, he is taking a long time to wake up. He is just not with it. What the fuck is with this dude? 
And then I also love that that is ironically the head that survives at the end is that the entire rest of Ghidorah is blasted apart. He's reduced to ash. And then in a weird fish market, we have the stupid head who is probably going to be used to bring Ghidorah back. And like, does that mean the next version of Ghidorah is just going to be like all that dumb? Or is that... (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Godzilla, come get me! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately we brought Ghidorah back, but he is an idiot now. It's... Yeah, um... Have you ever seen Multiplicity? <laughs> when they clone the clone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the kaiju in this movie, I, I just... Again, I think that I just don't care enough about this movie while I'm watching it to pick up on any of the things you picked up on. Like, I just didn't notice because I just don't care enough to notice, to be honest. So the kaiju, are ju- they're just monsters to me. I like, uh... I don't have the same, like, high opinion of Mothra that you do, Zach, but I will say that I really liked some of the visual shots. Like, there's one shot where she's almost completely backlit and you're seeing her kind of hovering there, which is a gorgeous shot. I remember thinking that in the theater. I remember thinking that is when she's first introduced as the in, in her moth form. And there, there are some gorgeous shots with Mothra, so I think the visuals with Mothra. She's a big moth, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's my only opinion of her as a character. Like, I don't really consider... I, I honestly... And this is just me. I don't really consider the kaiju to be characters, other than maybe Godzilla himself, to be honest. But I, that's, that's just me, personally. <laughs> I, know, I know people who like these movies feel differently from me, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I do find it... I'm not certain how I feel about Godzilla being a little more anthropomorphized in this movie. Like, in the original, he was... Like, intelligent, but a moving force of nature. And in this movie, he is... He is kind of a person. It's like, yeah, uh... No, I acknowledge you. I have my own personality. And I definitely enjoy... Like, he enjoys that moment where he's the alpha over the others. It's like... I'm I'm not certain how I I feel about that. Again, ultimately, I have to watch Godzilla vs. Kong. But overall, I think he's still characterized pretty much very similar to the first one. Where it's like, I am... Protecting the planet, that doesn't necessarily mean you. I can include you if you want, but doesn't necessarily mean you. My take is that we're just finding out more about Godzilla, because, like, in the first one, we're just seeing him more from the the perspective of the people fleeing from Mm -hmm. him. And so, like, he's portrayed as a force of nature because that's how he's perceived. In this movie, we're just seeing more about how he really is. So, the characterization of Godzilla himself, I actually is one of the few things I actually generally like about this movie. The rest of the kaiju are interchangeable to me. I, I, I'm going to be honest. They really are. <laughs> I don't think that we're going to see much more of the kaiju after this. I think that after... Uh, nothing has been announced after Godzilla vs. Kong. We'll see. I know that they have a uh, Skull Island show that has been pitched and that's being considered. I don't know if they've greenlit it yet. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that they're going to really continue with the Monsterverse movies. I think they're going to wrap it up with this next one. So, with that said, I would have liked to have seen, in this movie, more action with the kaiju. I would have liked to have seen Ghidorah challenge more. I would have liked to have seen Godzilla challenge more. I think that I think that time was wasted. Had I done this movie, let's... I have to put that out. Have Had I done this movie, it would have been like Captain America Civil War. Godzilla would have been challenging uh, Kaiju, and Ghidorah would have been ca- challenging Kaiju, and it would have come 
to that one team against the other collecting their their members and we would have seen more of the kaiju actually fight against each other especially since you don't plan on going on after this trilogy i think whether they continue or not is going to depend on how well the new one does because i think the reason they haven't announced anything is because i might be wrong but i I seem to recall that this movie actually kind of like, it didn't lose money, but it underperformed compared to what they were expecting in the box office. And yes. Godzilla vs. Mm-hmm. Kong was already in the works, so they weren't just going to cancel that. But, like, I think that they're waiting to see yeah. how Godzilla vs. Kong does, both in theaters and on HBO Max, mm-hmm. before they decide if they're going to continue forward or not. Yeah, I agree. I think it's. I think it was a business choice. That's why they had so many kaiju in this movie, is because they wanted to amp people up. But... People like me, simple folk, simple-minded folk like myself, like myself, <laughs> we are drawn to big monsters fighting. We are the kids that grew up and that were like, hey, hey, if, if, if a rhino and, and, and a hippo fought, who do you think will win? Um, uh, if an elephant and a tiger fall, who, who do you th- and, and that's what the kaiju is. That's all it is. In its simplest form... It's people like me with simple minds getting to see these large titans go at each other. Fuck the humans. But I do like that they improved on the human stories, starting with Skull Island. You know, there was only one throwaway human story, and that was in uh, Godzilla 2014. But you got to do something to get the to get it started. But I would have liked to have seen more of the kaiju. I love Mothra. I love Ghidorah. I love the... The small things, I'm glad you noticed, Zach, the the way that the heads were very different and that they would argue with each other and, and they had all these personalities. It added to it, but I would have loved to have seen more than posters walking up of kaiju. My thing with this is that I, I actually kind of agree with you, Troy. I think that it's possible that they might decide to do more Monsterverse movies later, but I do think there's a strong possibility that they might have wanted to end this with Godzilla vs. Kong, that they do have a story. And while I think it's fumbled, I think there's an interesting story of Kong kind of representing the last attempt for humanity to stay relevant in this new world. It's like, in, in Godzilla vs. Kong, one thing that, if I personally were having this movie... We're directing this franchise. I'm not, obviously. But I want to see the story 50 years or even 100 years down the road from the end of this movie. I want to see people who have had for an entire lifetime to get used to the fact that there is going to be a monster the size of a city passing through an area and we have to deal with that fact. Like, you either have to build your cities so that they don't want to step on them. Not that they can't. Because you, there's nothing you can do about that, but just they don't want to step on it. Or you have to be mobile. Like, does humanity become nomadic in the future? Because, again, Time monsters... to go mobile. <laughs> yeah, like... God damn it. <laughs> do, do we have to become nomads in the future? Or in 50 years, um, one one joke I made is that giant mammoth kaiju. I was like, does someone, like, open a restaurant on top of that thing? Or it's like, it's the kaiju restaurant, come join us. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to be in an area near you? Who knows? We can't control this guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
You might want to pack for overnight. Barring grill. Yeah, you might want to pack for overnight because there's no guarantee he's going to be back in your area anytime soon. (laughs) Where will we go next? We don't even know. (laughs) I've already touched on how dumb I think the Ghidorah Charles Dance post credit scene is. Like, I've already touched on that. So, like, as far as that sequel tease goes, eh. They did kind of build up. I do like that. They did actually build up some subtle connective tissue to Kong Skull Island. There's a character who's a monarch scientist is played by Joe Morton in this movie who is actually this the older version of the same character played by Corey Hawkins from Kong Skull Island. I like that. I like that connective tissue. I like the fact that they mentioned Skull Island and in the credits you see some things about Kong, you know, being more active and stuff like that. So there's some effective franchise building in this. Like, I still think a lot of this movie too, like and a lot of the reason I don't like this movie is like I think that there are things in this movie that feel like it feels like this movie just exists to set the stage for godzilla versus kong rather than being enough of its own movie like kong skull island works because it's its own movie like it it, it's it exists as part of this universe and yes the reason the movie exists is to establish kong for the confrontation but beyond that they approached it as completely its own movie they weren't bothered with like Yes, the, the organization Monarch and the post-credit scene of that movie establishes it as being in the same universe. So there's little Easter eggs, but they focus on telling their own story. And I think that this movie just feels too much like we're setting up future movies, you know. Let's wind down and kind of give our, our last thoughts and go ahead and get, give this one a score. Uh, Zach, why don't you start? Overall, this movie is... It's a it's a hot mess, um, in my personal opinion. I like almost none of the humans in this film. And the ones that I do like, I don't necessarily care about. Like, they're there, and sure, you're nice. But, you know, if you weren't in this movie, I wouldn't, you know, lose a lot of sleep, for the most part. The monsters, weirdly, I think, were handled pretty well, and I like them. Something that, again, happened in Kong Skull and happened here is that I think I lost. they lost a little of the weight... Of the monsters, the sheer scale and size of them felt not quite as appreciated. There's a difference between being big and being a natural disaster in motion. And I think that they they lost a little of that in this one. And plot-wise, it it wasn't that great a plot, um, in in my opinion. It sets up some interesting things. I liked, again, a lot of the monster characters. Especially the, you know, designs were very nice. So, I don't hate it, but... I'm pretty much going to give it a 4 out of 10. It's it's just not that great a movie. I completely disagree with you, Zach, when you say that you don't hate it. I fucking hate this movie so fucking much. I hate this movie. And I really do mean it when I say that. Because here's the thing about this movie. I understand, Troy, what you're saying about how there some people just want to see big monster fights. I get it. Big spectacle is fun in these movies. But we have seen movie after movie made by people who know what they're doing, where you can have big spectacle. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can have giant spectacle, and you can also have a good script and characters who you give a shit about. There are so many unknown screenwriters who would love to get their chance to write a movie like this who actually could probably come up with a really cool take on one of these movies who are really talented and are just wanting to get their chance, and instead they just churn out the most generic Mad Lib screenplay that I've ever seen. The the fights are fine, I guess. I don't even I don't even think that they're as as entertainingly shot as like the fight at the end of Godzilla 2014. Like 
it's just fine. This movie isn't that well isn't that well directed. I as far as the humans go, I like Millie Bobby Brown, but I also agree with you, Zach, that like I like her, but I don't exactly care about her. I'm never emotionally invested in this movie while I watch it. I'm I'm about to do something. And even though I think there are very slight redeeming qualities of this movie, I hate what this movie is so much. And I think that they there are so many, again, screenwriters that they could have given a chance to this movie who would have done so much better. This is one of the laziest movies I've seen in my entire life. One out of ten. I don't give a shit. This is a one out of ten. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what people are going to say. I fucking hate this movie so fucking much. <laughs> All right. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Godzilla King of the Monsters is a neoclassic. It really is. It paid homage to all of the to all of the Godzillas. They did away with the shitty shitty dramatic throwaway drama that was Brian Cranston in the first one. That was my biggest that was my biggest problem is that you you pay these high-level actors just to cry on command and it's not fan service. It's not these movies are all about fan service. If you're going to do a monster movie, you have to kiss a little ass. Or you have to be a fan. And it was written, uh, this one was written and directed by Michael Doherty, who also did Trick or Treat. I absolutely love, love, love Trick or Treat. I, I love his work. In Trick or Treat, he showed that he mastered horror anthology. In Godzilla vs. King Kong, he showed that he was either a fan or he mastered the formula of a monster movie. I can't say enough about this. The chaos that is in this movie is complete magic. It really is. The point of this movie is it's just an explosion. It's a bomb that he set off. And there's so much going on. You could watch this movie seven times, which I have, and you could still pick up... Yeah, I love this movie. I'm sorry. You could still pick out small things here and there, here and there. This movie is pure chaos the first time you watch it. And then the second time you watch it, you start to pick up things. And the third time you watch it, you're like, holy shit. And then the fourth time you watch it, you're like, oh, that line makes sense. It's, it's one of those movies that you have to watch multiple times. It was meant to be a, a second part of a trilogy, which is hard. A second trilogy is one of the hardest things to write, one of the hardest things to execute, because you can't spoil things too soon. The ideas of that mortality, passing the torch, respecting culture, it's all in here. And the humanity of this goes from this movie into Godzilla vs. Kong. So, after uh, giving Michael Dougherty this, this hand job, I have to give him a 10 out of 10. I give Godzilla, King of the Monsters, 10 out of 10. I love this! I love that we are literally on the exact opposite yes, side. we are. So, it's yeah. like, Zach, Zach is the Ken Watanabe, is just sitting back saying, let them fight. <laughs> and, and that's why I thought that us doing this show is great, because of that. 
I, I love that. And here's here's what I'm also going to say about my opinion versus Troy's opinion. I, I've come to this opinion over time. Like, I used to, like, just completely hate on movies that, that I didn't like. You know, it's like, oh, the Twilight movies are just trash and they shouldn't <laughs> even exist. I've come to the opinion, if somebody loves a movie, then the movie was worth making. Whether it's for me or not. This movie isn't for me. It really isn't. It very strongly is not for me. I will also admit that I one out of ten was probably a little overboard. Like it technically has has things about it. I thought it was it. awesome. It technically has things about it that are not terrible. I it's just my personal emotional feeling about this movie is I just hate what this movie is. But I'm glad that people love it. I'm glad that you love it. I know some other people who really love this movie. And if people love it, then it was worth. If anyone loves it, then it was worth making. I, I really honestly, I completely agree. That. It was not a. It was not a waste of film. It really wasn't. I think the whole point of this podcast is for people to come together me and you uh sam mm-hmm. uh we yes. are polar opposites whenever it comes to entertainment and i have enjoyed yeah. uh, our three bantering over facebook and and even when we were going to college together i enjoyed our banter about movies and i enjoy having yeah. people that don't necessarily agree with me it it, it opens my eyes mm-hmm. and i i do love i do do love the banter. That's the whole point of this show is, and and I love hearing I love hearing what you like about this movie yeah. because like you you both you both made points that I never would have thought of when it comes to this movie and like I and I that made me understand like how somebody could actually yes. like this movie. <laughs> Again, it's just not for me. It really it just isn't <laughs> exactly. for me, this movie. <laughs> and not not to not to have this veer into self fellation, but you know I've been doing those crunches for a reason. Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> that is the thing I do love about this podcast is whether or not I agree with you just by having these conversations, especially by having these conversations with people who have uh, literally the polar opposite opinion <laughs> on this movie, I learn so much about the film and I appreciate filmmaking and the effort yes um either way i appreciate hearing what people don't like what people don't think works i appreciate hearing what people love because either way you learn more about the process you learn more about the process you learn more about engaging with fans and what's more it's interesting because you find that whether or not a film is objectively good there is no film that is objectively good because every single film has to have that special it. And the secret of the special it is that it's not in the film at all. It's in the fans. It's in yes. the audience. That is the secret of the special it. Yeah, I am growing more and more of the opinion that there's actually... Even though I've said something is objectively good or objectively bad in the past, I've grown to the opinion there's actually no such thing as objective quality. Yeah. There really isn't. Mm. When it comes to art, there really is no such thing as objective quality. It's like... One person can can watch a movie and see just a pile of trash. The other person will see a masterpiece. You know, absolutely, that's which is exactly yeah. what just happened here. Hey Troy, uh, where can the kids find you on social media? The kids can find me when I'm not locked up in Facebook jail under Troy Hensley on Facebook and Instagram. I do enjoy calling Nazis and conservatives names, so sometimes I can't post. <laughs> <laughs> You can find my studio, uh, Meadow Wolf Studios. You can find that at meadowwolf.com. M-E-A-D-O-W-W-O-L-F.com. For folks out there who's interested in following my opinions, you can reach me on the Facebook at uh, Zachariah Schneider, or you can find me on the Twitters 
at uh, Zachariah Schneider as well. I'm not that imaginative when it comes to screen names, let's be honest. And that's also going to be under at Zachariah Schne4. That's Zachariah, S-C-H-N-E-4. And you can find me on Facebook at Mark Zuckerberg. So any hate mail, just direct directly to there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, actually, you can find me on Instagram at scwilson underscore actor. That's sc for cats, W-I-L-S-O-N underscore A-C-T-O-R. That's my Instagram handle. I'm an actor, writer, director, musician. I'm a professional video editor as well. So if you're interested in hiring me for your services, best way to do that, just send me a DM on the uh, Instagrams. I don't have a public page on Facebook. My main Facebook profile, I only add people who I know personally for the most part. But so so Instagram is, is definitely the best way to, to follow me. And you can follow Nerd Shit at the Nerd Shit Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. That's at the Nerd Shit Podcast or on Twitter at the Nerd Shit. We post new episodes generally every Friday. We had to kind of delay the recording of this episode just due to availability. But we are going to be on Friday of, of this week. It'll have already come out. We're releasing a spoiler review of Chaos Walking. And we also recently did a review of Ryan the Last Dragon as well. So this episode's probably going to be coming out either Sunday or Monday. We'll, we'll see when, when it actually comes out in terms of how quickly we're able to cut it together but starting next week we're going to resume our normal friday schedule our next review we're doing it we're doing a review of wandavision so stay tuned for our wandavision review yeah so that's vision that's coming out soon and very shortly we are going to have our review of zack snyder's justice league as well zach i've heard you you've done a really good job on zack snyder's justice league for sure i will also say that one one thing i'm going to go ahead and say about justice league beforehand is that there are two things that Zack Snyder and I have in common. One, almost the exact same name. And two, we really, really like seeing people, regardless of gender, take their shirts off to reveal abs. I only just noticed that about Zack Snyder, (laughs) but it's true. The man loves... Hot, muscly, shirtless people. It doesn't matter the gender. He just he just likes muscly, shirtless people. You know, I haven't watched the Snyder Cut yet, but I heard it's in a four by three aspect ratio, which is also bizarre. Yes. I heard, it's like what? Because like I saw one of the trailers was in four by three, and I was like, okay, it must just be so you can watch a trailer on your phone. Apparently, that's actually just the way the movie looks. It's like okay, we'll get to that it though. Is. But anyway, uh, for for Troy Hensley and Zack Schneider, I'm Sam Olson. Thank you for joining us for Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Stay shitty, nerds. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. So strap on in. Because we're talking about the Nerd Shit.